morning. Let's pray. Father, as we open your word, we we do pray that you would help us to give you our all, that you would help us to give you our full attention, our minds completely and our hearts completely to what you have to say to us through your word this morning. Pray that you would bless us by your word, that you would call us to greater faithfulness and that you would fuel us for that faithfulness by stirring our hearts up to love Jesus more. You would do it all by the power of the Spirit using the word that he has inspired. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Please open your Bibles to Esther chapter 9. Esther chapter 9, this morning we're finishing our study of the book of Esther. As you find your place there, let's, let us stand together. We'll read the last section here, beginning in verse 20. We'll read from verse 20 to the end. Esther 9, beginning in verse 20. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month Adar and also the 15th month of the same year by year as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast poor, that is, cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and of what they had faced in this matter, and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them, that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written, and at the time appointed every year, that these two days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew gave full written authority, confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus in words of peace and truth that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Queen Esther confirmed these practices of Purim and it was recorded in writing. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea and all the acts of his power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers. For he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. You may be seated.
It is significant the things that we are called to remember in this life and significant the things that we choose to remember. Until I was about 14, I was under the impression that there there are only two events of any real lasting significance in all of human history. The first, of course, is the Christ event, which is the, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the other is the Battle of the Alamo in San Antonio, Texas in 1836. Battle of the Alamo, of course, as you know, I'm sure when they were teaching Texas history here in Ohio, they taught you that the Battle of the Alamo was part of the Texas War for Independence from Mexico. You might wonder what happened to me at 14 that changed my, my view of things and enlarged the scope of what I thought were significant historical events. Well, it's at, it's at age 14 that the Texas Department of, Indi- of, of Education deems it safe to begin supplementing Texas history with a little bit of world and U.S. history. If by age 14 you have not learned that Texas is the greatest place on earth, you likely never will. The Alamo is sacred in Texas. Uh, Ozzy Osbourne is, is public enemy number one in Texas because he relieved himself on the Alamo. Now, people have been executed in Texas for far less. I'm not sure how he escaped the death penalty. But I won't go into a long explanation of the Battle of the Alamo. But as I mentioned, it was a battle for, it was a battle in the Texas War for Independence from Mexico. As a result of that battle, there's a refrain that is, that is said over and over in Texas and certainly in the education system, and that refrain is, remember the Alamo. Remember the Alamo. I heard that a million times if I heard it once growing up. And in my earlier years, I, I couldn't understand why we would want to remember the Alamo because we got our clocks cleaned. I mean, every Texan was killed at the Alamo. None of them survived. I mean, n- nobody wants to remember... Super Bowl 10 or Super Bowl 13, who was that? The Steelers beat us both of those Super Bowls. Nobody says remember Super Bowl 10. Why, why do we want to remember the Alamo? As I got a little bit older, I realized what, what the big deal was. At the Alamo, 200, 200 volunteer Texas soldiers held out for 13 days against 5,000 professional Mexican troops. 200 held out for 13 days against 5,000. It was like the Thermopylae of Texas. You, you may need to Google Thermopylae. But it forged an identity among Texans. You know, we're, we're not afraid of anything. I mean, we will fight for death. I mean, fight for freedom in the face of certain death. And the Texans stand at the Alamo had something of a Pearl Harbor effect. People started to come out of the woodwork to fight the rest of that war for independence against Mexico so that at the final battle of that war, the Battle of San Jacinto, there was that, that phrase that was coined, remember the Alamo, remember the Alamo. And it wasn't a, a cry for revenge. It was a cry of, hey, let's remember who we are. It was a statement of identity. This is who we are. We do the hard things. And I, I guarantee you that last month when when that big snow hit down in Texas and knocked everybody's power out, there, was, there were spirited appeals to the memory of the Alamo. You know, if, 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 if a little snow is, is going to bother us, clearly we don't remember the Alamo. Right? Remember the Alamo. Remembering significant events of the past can have, can have a direct impact on, on how we handle our present. can have a direct impact on how we how we regard our future as well. Remembering events from the past can be crucial reminders of, of our very identity, who we are. And that is nowhere more true than in the church of Jesus Christ. Formally and informally remembering the gospel of Jesus Christ is crucial to the Christian life. We remember the past, what Jesus Christ has done for us, And it has everything to do with our ability to live faithfully now, to regard who we are rightly, and to rightly think about our future. The significance of of remembrance is modeled for us here at the end of Esther. We read in verse 20 that Mordecai wrote all of these things down. That's why we have the account that we read in the book of Esther. Because Mordecai wrote everything down, and he wrote them down so that they could be remembered. 
The whole, the whole passage that we just read really lays strong emphasis on the importance of remembrance. I want to just point out to you a few textual markers that, that, we, that we may have passed over without thinking about it. Some textual markers, things in, in these verses that indicate to us how important it is to remember the events of this book. So for, for example, verse 21 tells us that Mordecai wrote these letters to the Jews to oblige them or to obligate them to keep these days of remembrance. We're to jump down to verse 27. We see that the Jews firmly obligated themselves to do this. And not just themselves, but they obligated their children. They obligated all those who would join themselves to the Jews. In verse 28, this obligation extends not just to the children of that one generation, but the obligation extends to all generations. Verse 28 also tells us that it says, hey, look, these days of, of remembrance, these should never fall into disuse. And that idea is repeated a second time by saying the commemoration should never cease. Verse 29, Queen Esther and Mordecai, they put their full authority behind this letter. Again, Esther is the queen and Mordecai is the number two in the whole kingdom. They put their full authority behind this letter obligating the Jews to do what? To remember what has, what has just happened. Verse 31 repeats the whole thing again. These days should be remembered as Esther and Mordecai obligated them and as they obligated themselves. Verse 32, the command of Esther confirmed this. It's recorded in writing. We go then into the very last chapter, chapter 10, verse 2. Chapter 2 establishes the historicity of everything that we've read here. Because you may have somebody saying, um, this, this, this book is so outrageous. The, the things here, the, the coincidences are so uncanny. This, this couldn't be real that this happened. And so he establishes the historicity of this here saying, look, all of this is written down in the chronicles of the kings of Persia and Media. They wrote these things down. This really happened. And in verse 3, he ele- elevates the stature of Mordecai among the Jews, again lending weight to this obligation that Mordecai Mordecai put on the Jews, saying to them, remember. The idea of all of it is, look, remember, remember, remember. This is important. Don't not do it. It is crucial to remember what's happened here. And these final verses remind me of, of what Paul wrote about the Exodus generation in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11, where he wrote that all, all of those things, all the, those things that happened in the Exodus generation, they, they happened to them as an example for us, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. And what Paul wrote there about the Exodus generation is not just true of the Exodus generation, but all of the Scriptures, everything that we have in our Bibles has been written down to teach us about God, to lead us about salvation, and for our constant remembrance. Have you, ever, have you ever wondered why we have four Gospels? We have four Gospels. Why? Well, there are numerous reasons, but one of them is to emphasize the relative importance of the incarnation of Jesus Christ and the importance of remembering what He did. We have four Gospels. Look, this is important. Then we go into the book of Acts, And the book of Acts is all about spreading that gospel, that story of what Jesus did to save us, spreading that to the ends of the earth. Then we go to the epistles, and what do the epistles do? The epistles just explain the gospel and tell us how to live in light of the gospel. All of it is just remember, remember, remember the gospel. Of course, that serves to emphasize not only the importance of remembering in the Christian life, but it also puts in front of us the content of Christian remembrance. And that's the first thing that's in your notes that we want to make special note of, that Christian remembrance focuses on the gospel. Christian remembrance focuses on the gospel. So Mordecai wrote all these things down because they're, they're things necessary to remember. And those events he recorded for them in verses 24 and 25. We don't need to go over those things again. But Purim was about this particular act of God's mercy that is detailed in the book of Esther. Christian remembrance is about the gospel of Jesus Christ in particular. That great reversal 
that we have enjoyed thinking about in recent weeks and that we, that we considered in length the last Sunday. The good news of Jesus Christ. Human history began with this great joy and peace in the Garden of Eden as man was, was made in God's image. He was given this privilege of, of representing God in the creation and knowing God intimately in close fellowship. It's a wonderful beginning of creation. But then in that one act of rebellion that's recorded in Genesis chapter 3, that close fellowship with God was forfeited and man's heart became hardened by an innate impulse to rebel. And Adam passed that rebellious disposition down to all of us so that now all of us, we like Adam, we are separated, we're born separated from God by our sin. We have a long record of rebellion against God. Each one of us, all have sinned, Paul teaches in Romans chapter 3. So we are liable to eternal punishment in hell, unable to rectify the situation because we can't undo the sins that we've committed in the past and we can't change our own rebellious hearts. This is a terrible predicament that we're helpless and hopeless in ourselves. But as has already been read for us this morning in Ephesians chapter 2, but God, but God, because of His great mercy, the great love with which He loved us, He sent His Son to to bring a reversal of that predicament for us. Jesus Christ, He lived on the earth and obeyed God perfectly like we didn't. He he earned a spotless record of righteousness before the Father. Completely different from our our perfect record of sinfulness and different from our condemnation. So Jesus' perfect record of righteousness qualified Him for all the blessings in the heavenly places and it also meant that He was uniquely able to bear the sins of others. He could never have borne the sins of anyone else had He had one sin on His own record because then he would have to pay for that sin himself. So God took this Jesus, who had a perfect record of righteousness, and put him forward as a propitiatory sacrifice. And that just means that he offered his own son to die on the cross to satisfy the wrath that was deserved by our sins. And three days later, God raised him from the dead, which proved that his sacrifice was sufficient to cover those sins and that Jesus has the right to give his resurrection life to everyone who repents and trusts in him. And so, everyone who repents, everyone who turns away from their sin and towards Jesus and trusts in him, trusts in his life, his death, his resurrection, his righteousness before God those people are forgiven of their sin. And Jesus' righteousness is credited to their account by God so that God God declares them righteous in Jesus. And because of all of that then, there is no judgment waiting for them on the last day, at at the end of this life. There's no condemnation waiting for those who are in Christ Jesus. Formerly condemned, now declared righteous. Formerly dead, now alive in Jesus. Now, there, there are other great events throughout salvation history that we might look back at and point to those things and remember them and say, look at that great salvation of God, that salvific work that God did. We could point to the flood, how God, God brought Noah and his family through the waters of judgment. Or we could, we could think about the Exodus and how God saved the Jews from, from Egypt. Wonderful act of salvation. We could think of what we've been studying here in in Esther. Haman's decree being brought back on his own head. But what we need to understand is that anytime we point back at one of those pictures of God's salvation, they are all shadows of the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. So the content of Christian remembrance is primarily and specifically the gospel. We can remember these prior acts of God but we need to understand that their fulfillment, everything that they are pointing to, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Second, Christian remembrance emphasizes what is pictured 
not the picture itself. Christian remembrance emphasizes what is pictured, not the picture itself. Now, if, if, if we were to maybe observe the celebration of Purim today, we might say that Purim among the Jews has become more about the celebration and less about the remembering or the content. And we might say that because even though the book of Esther is read in its entirety in synagogues, it's a really raucous affair that is characterized mostly by extreme inebriation. I mean, really heavy drinking. And and that's actually by design. The Talmud, which is a collection of writings by, by the rabbis throughout the centuries, the Talmud actually calls for this kind of revelry. It calls for such heavy drinking that, quote, the revelers can no longer tell the difference between blessed be Mordecai and cursed be Haman. So the, the, the celebra- it's, it's become about the celebration more than what does this mean? More importantly, we might say on, on this side of the cross and by the glory of, of uh, the grace that we've been given to see the beauty of Christ, we, we might say that, that those Jews celebrating Purim are missing the point, missing the larger point, because the glory of the story of Esther isn't, isn't just that the Jews survived, but that the Genesis 3.15 seed of the woman survived, and therefore the Messiah was able to come and fulfill all the promises of God. For Purim rightly understood, like all the rituals of the Old Testament, anticipates the coming of the Lord Jesus. And so when we, when we look at it as a thing in itself, we miss the point. When we, when we look at a, a Christless Purim, we're missing it completely. So the story of, of Esther is a story of reversal. Reversal. Death reversed and, and turned into life. It anticipates the coming of Jesus Christ who is the great reversal. He turns our death into life. It's, it's crucial in any remembrance not to lose the message behind the commemoration. The danger with any mechanism for commemoration is that the focus is going to be on the mechanism rather than the content itself. We need to be careful about this. Now, we, we don't celebrate Purim because like all of the other Old Testament shadows, we've got the substance now. So we, we don't celebrate the shadows anymore. We have the substance which is in Christ. Yet, the New Testament does prescribe for us several ways of remembering the Gospel. We have two formal ordinances, for example. We have baptism, which is what we might call the initiatory, the initiatory ordinance of the church. People are baptized into the church. Second, we have the Lord's Supper, which we think of as the ongoing ordinance of the church. Every time we, we observe the Lord's Supper, we are remembering His death until He comes. We also have what we, we might think of as less formal mechanisms for remembering the gospel, but they are no less biblical. We're, we're told to do them. We preach the gospel every Sunday. You may, you may not have noticed this. Maybe you have, but if, if you haven't, I'm about to point it out to you. No matter who's preaching here on a given Sunday, and no matter what the text is, the preacher makes an effort to include at least a brief synopsis of the gospel. What, what, what God has done in Christ to transform Sinners into saints, to take dead people and make them alive. And that isn't primarily because we believe that there may be a lost person here who could hear the gospel and then be converted. Now, if that happens, that's fantastic, and we we praise the Lord for that. That isn't the primary reason we do it. The primary reason that we do it is because we envision this worship service to be a collection of saints, people who already believe in Jesus, and it's our conviction based upon the the New Testament that the saints need to be reminded of the gospel. We need it. We need it. And so we preach the gospel. But we don't just do that in our in, in our sermons. We we sing gospel saturated songs like we've we've done all these already this morning and we pray gospel saturated prayers and we read gospel centered books. 
we advocate this thing that w- that we call preaching the gospel to ourselves. And we've we have recommended over the years numerous resources to help us do that. And in other words, we've 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 sought to make it a cultural norm here at Providence that it's just all gospel all the time. We we need to remember the gospel. The gospel isn't just the doorway into the church. It it is it isn't that we we believe the gospel and then, then we're a member of the church, and then we leave the gospel behind. Because when Paul said in Romans 1.16 that the gospel is the power of God for salvation, he did not mean that the gospel is the power of God for conversion, but he meant it's the power of God for all, all of his acts of redemption, from regeneration all the way to glorification. The gospel is the lifeblood of the church, and so we need to remember it all the time, all the time, all the time. But we, need, we do need to keep in mind that the danger, a, a danger that we need to be aware of is that, that we'll become so familiar with these mechanisms, baptism, the Lord's Supper, rehearsal of the gospel in, in its many forms, that we'll engage in those mechanisms mindlessly and, I'm about to make up a word, affectionlessly, affectionlessly. You can use that. So what I'm saying is we just go through the motions of these things. We baptize people, we observe the Lord's Supper, we hear the gospel and we sing it, and we do it without our minds and our hearts engaged. And I'll stand here before you and say I've done it, done it, done it. And I'm guessing I'm probably not alone, right? It takes intentionality and and discipline to remember, to remember the gospel with our minds and our hearts engaged. And so the elders, we, we, we try to assist you by, when we know there's going to be a baptism, we tell you about it ahead of time. And when we know that we're going to be observing the Lord's Supper, we tell you about it ahead of time so that you can be prepared now listen, you, you always know that you're going to hear the gospel. You're going to hear the gospel every Sunday here. So let me suggest to you that it would be wise, it would be spiritually helpful for every one of us every morning to, to make it a habit, to pray something like this. Father, please grant me the power of the Spirit to be fully engaged, to remember the glorious gospel of Jesus as we pray and sing and hear the word preached this morning. Please grant me and my brothers and sisters to remember with our whole minds, our whole hearts, what Jesus has done for us. Help us to remember. God's given us ways to remember. We must intentionally keep our focus on that content and not get lost in the mechanisms. Now, so we've, we've considered the importance of remembering itself. We, we've considered the, the content. Why is, is a good question. Why do we need to remember these things? Why do we need to keep our, our eyes on, on the content? This, this section of Esther has, has put a lot of weight on, on its importance. And when we hear that something is, is really, really important, the why question naturally comes up. Well, I want to give you three reasons why. There, there, there are many reasons that we could point to. I just want to give you three. And the first is that Christian remembrance declares our identity. It declares our identity. There's a lot about identity in the book of Esther. So Esther hid her identity at, at Mordecai's command early in the book. Nobody knew she was a Jew. The king didn't even know she was a Jew. Mordecai's identity was a mystery to the king, Ahasuerus, didn't know who saved his life. When those two things are made known, that's when salvation happens for, for, the, for the people. And last week we, we saw that things so turned in the Jews' favor that, that people across the kingdom began to identify themselves as Jews. And now in these last couple of chapters, what we're seeing is that by celebrating Purim, the people are saying, I am a Jew. I am one of the people of God. I'm one of the beneficiaries of God's great faithfulness to His people. It's, it is, in a sense, a statement of identity. The question, who am I, is, is one that, 
very naturally presents itself to the human mind. And, and the world will give you all kinds of help answering it. Your own fallen heart will give you help answering it. We tend to want to answer that question in ways that, that make us unique or special, different from everyone else. E- even believers whose minds have been freed from slavery to sin will still struggle with this because we're not perfectly sanctified. In the absence of intentional remembrance, we'll revert to worldly ways of defining ourselves, worldly ways of pursuing an identity. So if we're not intentionally looking at the gospel and what it says about who we are, then we can very easily begin to think things like, my identity is in what I do. My identity is in how much money I make. It's who I'm in a relationship with. It's my career. It's how successful or talented my kids are. It's my hobbies. Or, it can't even be something like this, it's my trials. I've got this one thing that's really wrong in my life. And I begin to think that's who I am. Or it's something horrible that has happened to me. Some kind of abuse or pain. This pain, that's who I am. Listen, when you, when you boil all of that down, what I'm about to say, I'm saying this out of love. I don't want to condemn anybody or, or, or I, I don't want to hurt you by what I'm about to say, but I really want you, I want, I want to free you from that. All, all of those things are recipes for idolatry. That's all it is. It is idolatry to think that way. And left to ourselves, divorced from intentional remembrance of the gospel, those are the kinds of things that our mind will gravitate toward when answering the question, who am I? Because those are the things that we see all the time. Those are the things that we feel all the time, that we hear all the time, that we do all the time. But listen, I'm telling you, if the Bible is true, That's not who we are. And that's why it's so crucial to meditate on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember the gospel. Remembering the gospel reminds me what my identity actually is. And listen, my identity as a believer is not a filthy sinner. That's a... That's a horrible bent of, of many people in the Reformed camps. Oh, we're all just horrible, filthy sinners. That is wretched. That is a wretched way of thinking. That's a half gospel that's pre-Jesus, and I would like to invite you to get rid of that way of thinking. Somebody who has believed in Jesus Christ, that's what you were. That's what you were. Please don't dishonor God. Don't think so lightly of the grace of the Father and the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus the power of the Holy Spirit, that you think of yourself as a believer, that you think of yourself as a filthy sinner. No, sir. That's what you were. But what are you now, according to the Scriptures? The the Scriptures use words like saint, holy one, righteous, justified, washed. And why are you those things? Because God said. God said that's what you are. God took the righteousness of Jesus Christ Himself, credited it to your account, and said, you are righteous in Jesus. That's what the Gospel says about you. And that's what's true. There's more though. Because if we continue thinking about the Gospel, we find even more about our identity. Because before we repented and trusted in Jesus, we were fatherless. The great Creator God adopted adopted us as a result of Christ's atoning work. He adopted us, and so now what does that make us? We are sons and daughters of God Almighty. That's who we are. And that that means that we are also then brothers and sisters of a risen king. That's our identity. We could go even deeper into this and think, not think, we could say definitively, our identity is, is in Christ. Because by faith, we've put on the Lord Jesus. We've put Him on. Romans 13, 14 and Galatians 3, 27. And that's what baptism pictures. 
That's what we, we should be thinking when we, when we see someone baptized. We should be thinking not just of them, but, but of ourselves when we were baptized. That person is very clearly saying, I so identify with, with Jesus Christ. I'm in Him. Romans 6.3 I'm in Him. I've been baptized into Jesus so that His life is my life. His death is my death. His resurrection is my resurrection. His righteousness, my righteousness. And this seems too good to be true, but it is true. His eternity, my eternity. It's mine. Because He's my identity. I'm in Him. Gospel tells me all of that. We remember the gospel because the gospel declares who we are. It declares our identity. And we need to be constantly reminded of that lest we drift to all of these lies that the world and even our own unsanctified hearts would tell us. Christian remembrance also fosters community. It fosters community. There was an obligation placed upon all the Jews, their children, those who joined themselves to the Jews. They were all obligated to do this. There's a recognition that, look, if you're going to call yourself a Jew, you do this with us. You will observe Purim. And why, why would they say that? Because they understood that, that what happened in the book of Esther was not just about those people in Persia all those years ago, it wasn't just about them being saved from death, but they recognized that if those people hadn't been saved from death, there wouldn't be any Jews today. They, they see in that event the preservation of their entire race. And so if you want to call yourself a Jew, you're going to recognize, you're going to recognize those events with us. You're going to observe Purim. And similarly, both of the Christian ordinances we have they have reference to the community of the saints. They speak to us about, about the fact that the gospel itself makes us one with one another. Believers don't baptize themselves, right? They're baptized by and into the community. Last year we spent some, some time looking into the scriptures and seeing that in addition to being baptized into Christ, the believers baptized into the church. 1 Corinthians 12.13 says that in one spirit we have all been baptized into one body. And in the book of Acts we see this pattern of, of people being baptized and then immediately being counted among the number of the saints. And all, all of that coincides with Paul's teaching in Ephesians chapter 2, which is that when Jesus offered Himself up as a sacrifice to reconcile us to the Father... He didn't only reconcile us to the Father, but He reconciled us to one another so that we're all in one body. So when, when, when we're reconciled to the Father, it's not that there's a bunch of bodies with Christ as their individual heads, but there's one body with Christ as the head all reconciled to the Father. Baptism, therefore, is not only a statement that I have been, I've been joined to Christ, but that person being baptized is also saying to the congregation, I've been joined to you. In the same way, when we, when we observe the Lord's Supper, we're all taking, partaking of the same bread and the same cup, as it were. In 1 Corinthians 11, which is one of those passages that we, that we tend to gravitate toward and, and read as we're preparing our minds and hearts to take the Lord's Supper, there in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul chastises the church there for failing to discern the body. That's the phrase he uses. They, they failed to discern the body. And what he means is, that they, they did not stop to think about the fact that the church is a, a unity remembering the broken flesh and spilled blood of Jesus together and not as individuals. Because they, they were thinking of it as individuals. They'd been treating the, the, the Lord's Supper as if it was, it was each their own private affair. There was no consideration being made for one another, not waiting for each other. They were not sharing the occasion. And for that reason, Paul said to them, look, what you're doing, that's not the Lord's Supper. That is not the Lord's Supper that you're eating. Why? Because the Lord's Supper is, among other things, a picture of our being joined in Christ. A point of the Supper is that all those who trust in the sacrifice of Jesus, they're united in one body. And that, that truth 
is, is taught in numerous places in the New Testament. We can think about Romans 12. We can think about Ephesians chapter 4. It's, it's all over the place. The gospel itself creates a body. It, it, is, it is a result of, of the work of Christ itself that we are joined together and do life together. So the, the gospel creates community. And when we remember the gospel, it fosters greater, a greater sense of community in a local body like ours. It fosters mutual love for one another. And that's crucial because Jesus said, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. It's crucial for that mission that Jesus has given us for us to remember the gospel. The gospel tells us that we've been joined together by him when he reconciled us to the Father. So Christian remembrance fosters community. It also clarifies our hope. Christian remembrance clarifies our hope. Repeatedly in the Scriptures, the point of remembering past salvation is to ensure the hope of future salvation. We remember past salvation in order to be ensured of the hope of future salvation. For example, the book of Deuteronomy was written to prepare the people to enter the, the, the land of God and to, to live righteously for Yahweh in a way that the wilderness generation did not. The wilderness generation, that was the generation that came out of, out of Egypt and they sent spies into the land, you'll remember. They sent spies in the land. The spies saw the giants and decided, oh, we can't do this. So Deuteronomy was written to, to tell that next generation, to prepare that next generation to live more faithfully than the wilderness generation. Okay, And so listen to what was written in Deuteronomy 7 in that regard. That former generation saw the spies in the land and said, we can't do this. Here's what Deuteronomy says to this new generation. If you say in your heart, these, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember. You shall look back at the past. Remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. The great trials that your eyes saw. The signs, the wonders, the mighty hand, the outstretched arm by which your God brought you out. So will your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. How did the Lord prepare them for the future? He pointed them to the past. He said, that I saved you this way in the past. Remember that. That's what I'm going to do in the future. You can know this is going to happen in the future because of what I did in the past. Remembering salvation past clarifies hope for salvation future. And, and let's just be reminded very, very quickly what, what Biblical hope is, it isn't the worldly hope of wishful thinking, but rather it is the confident expectation of a certain future. It's a confident expectation of a certain future. God has saved us in the past. He's a God that never changes. This is all based upon the character of God. He saved us in the past. His character never changes. He's promised salvation in the future. So that, that future salvation, take it to the bank. And and this is how the, the, the Jews have regarded the book of Esther. They have regarded the book of Esther as a, as a great reason to, to be hopeful for the future. As you might imagine, the book of Esther was precious to the Jews during the Holocaust. And the Nazis hated it. They hated the book of Esther. In fact, if, if a Jew was found in a Nazi prison camp with a copy of Esther, that Jew would be executed immediately. Why? Because the Jews couldn't afford hopeful, I'm sorry, the, the Nazis couldn't afford hopeful Jews. But the Jews couldn't afford to be hopeless. And so even though they knew that they would be killed for it, many of them wrote out the entire book of Esther from memory so that they would have it with them and they could remember, remember, remember. And be inspired to hope even in the midst of that horrible, horrible nightmare. Now that might beg a question for us. Why didn't God save the Jews from that great destruction in the Holocaust? And there wasn't complete annihilation, but it was worse than anything else that, that we've been aware of in, in, in history. If, if salvation past ensures salvation future, why did so many Jews die? Well, very, very quickly, the hope of, of salvation that is pictured in the Old Testament 
it, it looks forward to a salvation in the future. It points forward to a salvation in the future that isn't so small that it finds its fulfillment in an extended life on this side of eternity. In other words, we don't look to the shadows of the Old Testament and say, look, God saved His people in the past. Therefore, I can be confident that God's not going to let me be killed at 45. He's going to let me live a long natural life and die when I'm 80. That's not the great hope of, of the Old Testament, those old pictures. Rather, all of those things point to a greater salvation, which is because God saved in the past, there's, it's a picture of this thing where Christ saves me from sin forever. He gives me life in Himself right now, and I never die. That, that ultimate death, which is separation from God for all eternity, that's removed from me. Now, the people of God, the one people of God, which, which consists of believing Jews and Gentiles, we're all still going to die physically. We're all still going to die physically. Some of us feel it happening right now. In fact, you know, we're, we're told, we're told as, as members of the church, we're, we're told to expect suffering because we're Christians. In other words, the, the Lord does, does, does not say to us, look, because, because of the cross, you can expect you're, you're not ever going to be harmed because you're a Christian and you're going to live a long natural life. In fact, we're actually promised you're going to suffer greatly because you're a Christian. You're going to be persecuted because you're a Christian. Those who don't suffer because they're Christians, they're actually the tiny exception to the rule in this world. But they will be saved. They will be saved from that ultimate death, that ultimately, ultimate death which is separation from God. And again, what is it? What is it that inspires that hope? That tells us that that is certainly what's going to happen. It's that salvation past. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. The redeemed of Jesus Christ have already, because of the cross, they've already begun to enjoy eternal life in that they know God in Jesus Christ. And because they know God in Christ, because their sins have been forgiven based upon the atoning work and resurrection of Jesus, because they've been adopted by God, they know, they know that when Jesus returns on the last day, they will be among those ushered into the new earth rather than those ushered into punishment in the lake of fire. So, remembering this, remembering this, this thing of, of hope for the future based upon salvation in the past, this is an explicit function of the, the Lord's Supper. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. So we think about the Lord's death, and we proclaim that until He comes, we have our mind on Him coming back. Part of the good news that we remember when we observe that supper is that because we're partakers of Jesus, just as surely as, as He died for us, just as surely as He was raised for us, just as surely as He ascended to heaven for us, He is coming back for us. He is coming back for us. Every time we, every time we partake of that bread, every time we partake of that cup, we're reminding ourselves, He's coming back, He's coming back, coming back just as surely as he died for me he's coming back for me now this sermon series in esther has been subtitled delivered by a hidden providence god was working in unseen ways to deliver his people from certain death on the surface it looked as if all was hopeless it looked like everything was lost the people were at the mercy of earthly ungodly sovereign powers but what was really happening is that God, the one true sovereign power, before any danger even presented itself, He was making strategic placements to set the stage for redemption. And while He could have, he could have worked alone, He granted His people to, to be sacred instruments of that salvation. So He allowed Esther and Mordecai to participate with Him in that work. And he granted this great reversal for his people. He gave, he gave redemption. And so here at the end of the book, Mordecai and Esther, they say with great gravity, look, remember this. Don't ever let yourself fall into forgetfulness. Don't ever let these days of remembrance fall into disuse. 
And the book of Esther is just a shadow of the redemption that's ours in Jesus Christ. And just like Esther and Mordecai called the Jews to remember, so also Jesus has called us to remember Him. Do this in remembrance of me. Why did Jesus want us to remember Him? We've just considered a few of the immediate reasons. We might think of them as immediate reasons. That it's about our identity and our community and our hope. There's a more foundational reason that gives fuel to those reasons. Why did Jesus want us to remember Him? That foundational reason is that He loves us. He loves us. He loves us and He knows this. That we flourish when we're closest to Him. We flourish when we're closest to Him. That's what was true in the, in, in the garden. We, we were created to know Him. And so when, we're not, when, when we, we don't know Him, when we're not close to Him, we malfunction. We only flourish when we're closest to Him. And when we fall into forgetfulness, our affections begin to wane and then we start to drift. We drift into false identities that are harmful to us. And we drift away from the community of the saints, and that's harmful to us. We drift toward worldly false hopes. That's harmful to us. Jesus loves us, so He wants us to flourish. So He wants us to stay close to Him. That's why He says, remember me. Remember me. Remember me. And so... As we close Esther, let's obligate ourselves, as the Jews did here, to remember. Let's remember. Let's remember Jesus. And let's pray together. Oh, Father, we are so grateful to you. So grateful to you for the many privileges that are, that are ours in this life. We thank You, Lord, for the, the privilege that we've enjoyed of opening the Scriptures together these, in these recent weeks and studying, studying this particular book and seeing more of You here and the Gospel of Christ here. We pray, Father, that as we, as we, leave, as we leave Esther behind, we would not leave Esther behind, that we would take these truths with us and return to them often, that we would remember, remember, remember. We thank you, Father, that this gospel that we remember is true. We thank you, Lord, that these things that we remember, they are not mere historical events, but that they are historical events that transform us, that have completely reversed the course of our lives and existence. We were dead and now we're alive. We were condemned and now we're justified because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Please help us to love these things by remembering these things. We ask this in Jesus' name.